Guys, so glad that you're here. Thanks for being here. Uh, like I said earlier, my name is John Trapp. I'm the campus minister here for RUF. And um, just to kind of, I want to introduce a couple of people to you too, because uh, I know there's probably still a lot of new people coming and checking us out. The first person I want you to meet is Chrissy Trapp. Where are you, Chrissy? I was just sitting beside you. That's my wife, Chrissy. She's awesome. Y'all should get to know her. Yeah. Thank you, person clapping. I, I appreciate that. Um, Chrissy. <laughs> so Chrissy, uh, Chrissy and I have been married for 10 years. We've got uh, four kids, Owen, Lucy, Georgia, and Betsy, and number five on the way with a name that we cannot figure out. So if you have any suggestions, we are all ears. Um, boy, though. So boy names, please. And uh, so that's Chrissy. We also have two new uh, RUF interns. So these are people who just graduated from college or just graduated from, uh, one of them has just graduated from their master's degree. And uh, they're both from Ole Miss and they've moved here and are going to uh, be interns, meaning like they're here to like minister to you guys. They've just been kind of through college like y'all are in right now. And so they're here to be a listening ear for you. Our guy intern is Andrew Davidson. Andrew, stand up right there. He's in the back. He was helping us with music a second ago. And Mary Henley Green is right over here on your right, my left. Uh, y'all get to know them too. And it's in, if you, wanna, um, if you ever want to grab coffee with them or if you ever want to grab coffee with me, our phone numbers are in, um, are in that sheet on the announcement. So hit us up. Um, and I love spam, so please spam me. And Eve, like, just send me random texts. It's great. Um, kidding, that was a joke. Anyway, so welcome to RUF. RUF, we're, we are a place or a ministry that we, we really care about what the Bible says. Uh, we think a lot about what the Bible says a lot. And we talk about it because we think that it's God's word. And what we believe at RUF, what we, what we think the Bible teaches is that a Christian fundamentally is not someone who does great things for God. That's not what Christianity is about. And you may have like gotten that vibe from the church or from Christianity, maybe all your life if you've grown up around a church or around Christians. We don't think that a Christian fundamentally is someone who does great things for God. We don't think Christians really have anything to be proud of. It's kind of like what Paul talks about. Like, I have, I have only one thing to boast in, and it's Christ. Everything else, he says, is rubbish. I've got all, nothing else to boast in. So what we believe at RUF is that Christianity, a Christian isn't someone who fundamentally does good things for God. A Christian is someone for whom God has done great things by his grace, for people who don't deserve it, for people who are sinners. And so... If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you're kind of figuring out what you believe, if this is your first time you're here, wherever you are, we're really glad that you're here. Like, thanks for taking a night to be with us and to consider the claims of the Bible with us. Like, it really, it's an honor to have you here, and we're glad that you're here, and I hope you'll keep coming back. Um, what we are going to consider kind of this whole semester, one of my favorite characters in the Bible is this guy named Simon Peter. His name's Simon, Jesus renames him, we talked about that last week. Jesus names him Peter or Cephas, which means rock. And um, Peter is this really relatable person because he's kind of a screw-up. And also, Peter is, he's an eyewitness to, to some amazing things that Jesus does. And here's the thing with Christianity. Like, one of the things that's totally different about Christianity and other world religions is that 
like, if the things that are claimed in the Bible didn't historically happen, like, if they're, like, if they're just legends or myths, then the whole thing is a farce. Like, we can pack up and go home. Like, more, and this is, this is why that's vital for Christianity and not for other religions, that, that the things that are claimed in the Bible historically and actually happened. Because while other religions are essentially, they're essentially, and I know I'm painting with a broad brush here, and I'd love to talk to you more about this in detail, but they're essentially advice for this is the good life that you need to live in order to ascend to God, in order to be to go to paradise or to heaven or nirvana or whatever. These are the things that you need to do. Or even here's, here's our leader who was a good example for us for how we should live. But what the Bible claims is that Jesus did not come here to be an example to you about how you should live. Jesus came to live the life that you couldn't live. He came to live a perfect life that you and I can't live. And he did it because he's kind to sinners. And so it's why we, it's why we have the Christian term gospel. It, it, it's, a, it's a first century Roman term that the Christians kind of like stole and started using. Because the Romans would have what they called evangelizers. Or, or euangelion is the, is the Greek word for gospel. Which means good news. And so if like Caesar won a battle and he wanted someone like on, you know, he wanted the kingdom or his empire on the west to know about the battle that happened in the east or the new emperor who's been born or whatever, they would send evangelists out into the cities to bring the good news of what had happened. And so what we believe that the Bible is teaching is that Christianity is fundamentally not advice, it's news. It's news about what has happened in real time and space. That God has not waited for us to ascend to him and be good enough for him, but that God entered time and space. He has condescended to us to rescue us. And so we're going to look at kind of this whole semester, the, the things that Peter eyewitnessed, the things that he saw happen in time and space. And as we do that, I want us to consider what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It's kind of what I want to look at tonight. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Because we're going to see here that Peter is called by Jesus to be a disciple. And I want to, I want to think about what does that actually mean. So let me pray for us and we'll, we'll dive in. Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and that the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, that you would really be with us now uh, in your spirit and help us to understand uh, what your word is telling us, and I pray that you'd speak through it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want to look at three things tonight. The qualification of a disciple, the vocation of a disciple, and the motivation of a disciple. So I got really into like rhyming my points this summer when I was preaching other places. So just to warn you guys, like more of that's coming. But anyway, the, the qualifications of a disciple, the vocation of a disciple, and the motivation of a disciple. And I think that all three of those things are here in this text. So 
uh, to tee up my first point, I'm going to tell you a story. I, my friend Matt Howell, who's the campus minister at, Texas, or at Tennessee, at REF at Tennessee, told this story, and it remind, I had actually heard this podcast um, that he told me about. Did any of y'all listen to the Moth podcast? It's like, basically, you do, yeah, let's go. You should, it's really fun. So basically, it's just people getting up on stage at like a bar or a theater or whatever, and they tell a story of something that happened to them in their life. And it's like a 10-minute story. And some of them are ridiculous. I'm about to tell you one of them. So this guy named Bradford Jordan tells a story about um, when he was, he was living in New York. He was working on his um, master's degree. And he'd been dating this girl for a while. And they'd moved in together. They were thinking about getting married. But like a big sticking point for them was that she wanted kids and he didn't. And they, like, couldn't figure out what they were going to do. And it was kind of becoming this thing that, like, was probably going to make them break up. And so he, he goes home for spring break back in California. And as he's telling the story, he's like, you know, I'm in my childhood bedroom. It's late at night. I'm catching up on email. And this email just kind of, like, pings in my inbox. And the subject of the email is, I have something to tell you. And it's from an email address that he's never seen before or gotten. And for some reason, he opens it up. And this is the email that's in his inbox. Dear Bradford, in 2005, when you were living in Oxford, we were introduced by a mutual friend, and we got drunk, and we hooked up. I never told you, but I got pregnant that night, and it's been five years. And I've been talking with my therapist, and we agreed that this was the right time to reach out to you. So... Whether or not you want to be involved with your son's life is up to you. Email back if interested. And Bradford, as he's telling the story, says that he reads that email and his heart is instantaneously transformed. He said, this person that I had no idea even existed five minutes ago, I now felt boundless and infinite love for them that I would do whatever it would take to care for this child, that I didn't even know who he was or where he was, but I knew I would do anything for him. And so, but here's the deal. Now he's got this girlfriend that he's still dating that he needs to inform, like, what's going on. And so the next day uh, he calls his girlfriend and he says, hey, uh, we need to talk about something, like, can you sit in, like, I need you to make sure, like, you're sitting down for this. She's like, okay, like, what's going on? And he's like, um, so it turns out um, I, last night I got this email, and um, you know how I've been having, I've been, like, reluctant about having kids and stuff, and it's been hard for us. And she's like, yeah. He's like, okay, well, last night I got this email. She's like, yeah, from Stephanie Miller. And he goes, yeah, how did you know? And she goes, April Fool's, guess you do want kids. (laughs) Right? Um, So they're no longer dating. But uh, (laughs) but happy... Happy part of the story, like, they are, like, married to other people now. He said, like, yeah, like, it's kind of a funny story looking back, but... uh, Here's the thing. She, uh, some, don't get any ideas, by the way. But 
like, Bradford in that moment, he got a glimpse of, of something that m- might be better. He got a glimpse and a whiff of like what it might actually be like to be a dad. And it just like transformed the way that he saw the world, even though it was like ended up being fake and stuff. But go with me. Bradford, Bradford sees something and it totally changes his perspective because he gets a glimpse of something. And that's what happens here with Peter. Peter, Peter gets a glimpse of who Jesus really is. And it totally recalibrates everything for him. Everything. His life is totally changed after this story happens. And so to, to kind of like paint the picture, I want you to think about the setting. Um, we're told that they're by the Lake of Gennesaret, which is another way of saying it's also known as the Sea of Galilee um, in other parts of the Bible. And verse 2 tells us that you've got these fishermen and they're, they're washing their nets, um, which means that it's closing time. Like they've been out fishing all night. Verse 5 tells us they're fishing all night. That's what you would do if you were a deep sea fisherman on the Sea of Galilee in the first century. You go out with your nets and you cast your nets over and you pull them up and you try to catch fish and you would do that all night. And then in the morning time you'd come in and you're cleaning your nets, you're mending the parts of the nets that are torn and that's what they're doing right now. And these guys have had a bad day. Like they didn't catch anything. And they're, they're tired and their stomachs are growling and they're ready to go home and take a nap. And then Jesus asks them to do something that doesn't make any sense. Jesus tells them to go back out and cast their nets again. And <laughs> it's something that if, like for Peter, it would have made zero sense to him to do that. Because he's like, hey, look. I've been fishing all night, but they're not biting right now. And I know that I've been fishing this sea my whole life. This is, his, this is his profession. This is what he is an expert in. And now this like Jewish rabbi is going to come and tell him how to fish. And, but, what, but what he does is he actually listens to Jesus, even when Jesus asks him to do something that feels ridiculous or that doesn't make sense to him. And here's my question to you, especially if, you, especially if you're sitting here tonight and you would say that you're a Christian. Do you ever do things that God asks you to do in his word that doesn't make any sense to you? Like, do you ever come across a part of his word that is like maybe telling you to do something that doesn't make sense or is maybe uncomfortable and you do it? Because it's God asking you. Or do you treat God like your dermatologist? Let me explain what I mean by that. Because I know that sometimes I do. Like when I go to my dermatologist, they usually tell me a couple things. Can I share with you what they tell me? They they tell me I should wash my face more at night. Like, ooh, yeah, I know. I need to make sure I'm doing that. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. I should be washing my face more at night. She, my dermatologist, usually say, um, you need to like lay off the sodas. Okay, like that makes sense. I'll stop doing that. And then she always tells me I need to get like a face moisturizer with like SPF 15 in it. 
and that I need to apply it every day and that I need to put sunblock on every day, even if I'm outside for like 10 minutes because I like sit inside and talk to you people and drink coffee. And she's like, no, you still need to, to get sunblock on. And that's when I'm like, okay, like I'll take that under advisement and then walk out the door. I'm like, I'm never buying face moisturizer. Right? Like that doesn't make any sense. Okay. <laughs> Because when she asks me to do something that doesn't make sense to me and that I can't really see like a bunch of reasoning behind it, I'm like, no, I'm not. And, you know, that's kind of how we can treat God. They're like, man, he, he may ask me to do X, he may ask me to do Y, and those things sound like reasonable. Okay, I won't like, he, asked, he said, don't murder, don't steal. Okay, that makes sense. But then when he asks me to do like Z, whatever that might be, we're pretty adept at like thinking of reasons why we sh- why like that doesn't really matter. And I would suggest to you that when we do that, we are revealing who we really are. That in fact, it's it's a you're breaking a commandment that you probably think that you would never break. It's the second commandment. The second commandment is the one about like not bowing to like carved images. Like whenever I've like read through the second command, like through the Ten Commandments, and like you know, I'm like okay, like I probably yeah, I definitely lie. Like I've stolen some. Like probably should like delete that pirated music on my phone or whatever. You know, like we like read those things, and like but then we get to like you read the one about like don't don't like make any graven images and like carved images of God or of anything on heaven and earth, and it's kind of like check. I'm pretty good at that one. I'm not like bowing to like a chicken idol like in my dorm or something. Sorry if I offended any chicken idol bowers out there, but you shouldn't be doing that. Um, but here's, here's my point. What, what that, the heart behind that commandment is that you don't get to decide who God is. You don't get to say who he is or what he does, that he gets to define himself on his terms. And what we are prone to doing is taking the God that's revealed in the Bible and making a comfortable version of him. Make, carving him into an image in our minds where he doesn't ask us to do anything that is uncomfortable or challenging, or hard for us. And that's crafting an image of God. And it's breaking the second commandment. And we, (laughs) look, the reason that we do that is because when you come face to face with the real God and who he is, it's disconcerting. That's what happens to Peter here. Peter doesn't craft an image of Jesus. He like Jesus asked him to do something strange and kind of difficult. Like, hey, I know you've like cleaned up all your nets and you're ready to go home and it's like closing time, bud, but get back in the boat and go out there and convince all your friends to do it with you. And he's like, if you say so. That's what he said. He's like, all right, like, <laughs> if you say so, Jesus, like this is not gonna work, but all right, whatever. And he does it. And then what happens? is Peter, come, Peter comes face-to-face with, like, who Jesus really is. Because there's this huge catch of fish. 
The first, they drop down the net the very first time, and like there's so many fish that they need to bring another boat, and they put, it says they put so many fish in the boats that the boats are actually starting to sink. These big, like you can go online and like Google what a, um, a Sea of Galilee, a first century Sea of Galilee fishing boat looks like. They're like 20 or 30 feet long. They're like seven feet deep. This, these big old boats are like sinking because they're that full of fish. And like, it's kind of like Jesus just knows Peter and he knows like this is what that guy needs to see because He's like speaking Peter's language here. It's like when my, my, my college roommate I went at, uh, at Vanderbilt, he's a portrait artist now, and he's like super artsy, and I'm not at all, and I don't get art very well. I would love to be that person. If you do get art, like come talk to me and help me understand. But like my friend David, if you look at a John Singer Sargent picture with him, who's like this, like, he's like his like favorite artist, and like listen to him start talking about like the way that John Singer Sargent does shading and light and he'll just start going, blah, 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 blah. he just starts talking about it and like all I hear is like wah, 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 wah. I'm like okay I don't get that at all but when he sees that amazing thing he appreciates it Peter is this fisherman and when he catches all these fish and he's been out there all night he knows that only, like only God can do this he comes face to face with who God really is and here's what I want to ask you When's the last time that you considered who the God of the Bible claims to be? That the God of the Bible, the Bible is claiming that there's only one true God. And that he spoke everything into existence by the word of his power. That everything that exists in the universe. Have you ever gone on YouTube and watch those videos that like start on like with like a little girl like holding a balloon and then it starts to like zoom out from the little girl and then like you see like a tree and then like a house and then like her neighborhood and then like clouds and then planet earth and then I'm going to run into something okay and then like then the the solar system and so you're like soaring by Mars and Earth is getting smaller and smaller and then like the sun if y'all seen these videos you know what I'm talking about and then it's like okay like enough with like the solar system we're gonna do with galaxies now and like these enormous stars that are so ridiculously huge and mind-boggling start to appear and it's got the sun like right next to it and the sun which is a million times bigger than the earth is like tiny next to these other stars the bible claims that god spoke all that into existence And some, I've been with students sometimes who are like, okay, dude, like, just think about that for a second. How can you claim that, like, people are image bearers of God when we're just, like, a tiny little speck on a planet? Uh, we're a tiny or a speck on a speck of dust that's swirling about this huge cosmic universe. But what the, Bi- what the, what the, God, what the Bible is claiming is that when God created things, he was showing us his glory. And so would it not, here's my question, would it not make sense for the God of the universe when he was going to show his glory to all of his people, would he not make it mind-boggling enormous? Of course he would. Of course he would. And my question is, have you, have you reckoned with how, how vast he claims to be in the Bible and how in control he claims to be in the Bible, that God is Lord over every molecule, over every heartbeat, over every thunderstorm and comet, and of every fish in the sea. 
And when Peter reckons with this, that's when we find the qualification for a disciple. This is when we find it. What's the qualification? You've probably been wondering, okay, this is a, this is a really long first point. My other two points are shorter. The qualification of a disciple is that Peter sees he's a sinner. Did you catch it? When he sees who Jesus is and what he's done, he says, he's, un, he's like, undone. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's it. Peter gets who he really is. Jesus tells a story later on, uh, or there's a story about Jesus later on in Luke 5.30, a few verses down. And it says, the Pharisees and the scribes, the Pharisees and the scribes, the, the religious people, okay? The religious people began grumbling at Jesus' disciples, one of them being Peter, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Jesus has come. He has come for the sinners. And you can't be a disciple unless you know you are a sinner. That's the qualification for being a disciple. Is to see how great he is and how needy we are. That standing before him, that we bring nothing to the table that would make us acceptable to him. Because of our sin, because we are not holy and flawless and blameless. And when Peter realizes that, he's like, get away from me. Really? He says, Jesus, get away from me. Depart from me. Because Jesus' problem with the Pharisees, the religious people, they're second commandment breakers. They have made their own image of God. What they have done is they have come, they've taken God's law, and they've begun to add to it. Like God says to keep the Sabbath holy. If you really want to keep the Sabbath holy, here's, I mean, and y'all, they have this huge laundry list. Here's all the ways, here's all the things that actually, what it means to keep the Sabbath holy. Like, you got, you can't make your bread at this time, you can't put yeast in this, you can't do, I mean, they have this whole list. And they're making an image of God of who he really is, of who they think he is, instead of dealing with him as he's actually revealed himself in his word. And we do the same thing as them. We make God into our own image. Just like they add to God, added to God's law, we add to his law. For instance, if, if you were to ask someone what gets you into heaven, maybe even someone who's grown up in the church, what gets you into heaven? Well, being a good person or, uh, or even like trying to follow Jesus' example as best as I can, like trying to be a Christian as best as I can gets me into heaven. And what Jesus says, how he's revealed himself to be, is he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we add to that. When we say, no, it's actually, it's that plus being good. It's Jesus plus something. And Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And maybe you're sitting here thinking like, dang, you're saying Jesus is the only way into heaven. That sounds pretty narrow. Um, my a kind of pastor, like hero of mine, this guy named Joe Novenson, he talks about when he, he gets that pushback all the time when someone will be like, man, like you're, that's so narrow, Joe, that you would say that like, only, the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus. And so his response is usually to ask, okay, so like, 
who do you think gets into heaven? And the answer is usually something like, well, like nice people. Like people are try, like, trying to love their neighbor, trying to be good to other people. Um, you know, people who uh, care about others and aren't like hateful. And Joe's response is always, your way is far more narrow. Because what about the bad people? What about the bad people like me? Because I'll tell you what, I don't always love my neighbor as myself. And I'm not always nice. And that requirement being what gets me in is a very narrow requirement that actually no one can live. That Jesus is actually, his way is a way that anyone can come into. Because what I want you to see, the reason that being a, being a sinner is a qual- the qualification, seeing that you're a sinner is the qualification for being a disciple, it's because God is, God is always moving towards sinners. He's always working in their lives. Y'all, the Old Testament is filled with this truth. Abraham, the father of God's people, in Genesis 12, like we meet him, do you know what he starts doing like pretty soon after God chooses him? Abraham lies to Pharaoh about his wife not actually being his wife. He basically sells his wife as a sex slave to Pharaoh so that he won't die because his wife's beautiful and he thinks Pharaoh will kill him. And then like, just keep going down the family tree. Jacob, he was a liar. He was a, he was a thief. He was a traitor. Um, keep going down the line a little bit. You know Jacob's grandkid, Judah? Judah slept with his daughter-in-law when she was dressed up like a prostitute. And they had a baby named Perez. Um, Rahab, she was a prostitute in God's people, a hero of God's people. Um, David, David was, David raped someone and then murdered her wife, murdered, murdered her husband. David's kid Solomon was a sex addict. And he was an idol worshiper. And guess what? All the people I just told you, that's Jesus' family tree. I'm just telling you his genealogy. If you look at Matthew 1, you look at Matthew 1, all that kind of boring genealogy that you read, and you're like, man, what is all this? Like, Perez, that kid that came from Judah and Tamar, Perez is one of Jesus' great, 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 great grandfathers. What God is showing in this is that he actually is the God who comes to sinners and cares for them and works through them and in them. And the qualification of being a disciple is seeing that you are one. So what's the vocation of a disciple? The vocation of a disciple is given to Peter. Jesus tells him his new job. Now you're going to start fishing for men. And like, that sounds weird. Right? Like, let's be honest. Like, fishing for men sounds strange. Um, what, what does he mean by that? And I think that, I think that what we can interpret that as is, oh, okay. So, like, now Peter is going to become a salesman for Jesus. Because he's just going to go, like, catch some men. Let's, like, get some new recruits. That's the job now. And... I want you to think about, I want you to remember the qualification 
The qualification for Peter to become a fisher of men is that he had to first admit that he was a broken and helpless sinner. And so if that's the qualification, that probably means that that comes into play with the vocation of being a disciple, of being a fisher of men, that you've got to be a broken sinner. Here's what I mean by that. It was August 2013. The school year had just started in Georgia. And a gunman entered Ronald E. McNair Discovery Learning Academy. It was an elementary school east of Atlanta. And the gunman entered and fired his AK-47. And he had more than 500 rounds of ammunition with him. And the school immediately went into lockdown. And this gunman, the first person he came face-to-face with was a woman named Antoinette Tuff. She was a school bookkeeper. And she just happened to be working the front desk that summer day. And Tuff immediately called 911. And then with the dispatcher on the line, she began to speak with her would-be killer and act as an interceder between this man named Michael Brandon Hill and the police who are outside as this hostage negotiation begins happening. And you can actually go online. It made national news, you can go online and listen to the 25-minute phone call of her talking with the 911 dispatcher and talking with Michael Brandon Hill. And what Antoinette Antoinette Tuff begins to do is she begins to tell him about her life and her brokenness. She tells him about her divorce. She tells him about her suicide attempt and the difficulties of living with a disabled son. She says, this is quote, I tried to commit suicide last year after my husband left me, but look at me now. This is her talking to this man with a gun. Look at me now. I'm still working, and everything's going to be okay, and you can be okay. And then she convinces him. As she like begins to share her brokenness and her vulnerability, she convinces him to stop what he's doing and, and to not to not go through with what his plan was. And as he's laying the gun down, she says, it's going to be all right, sweetie. I just want you to know I love you, though, okay? And I'm proud of you. And the experts who looked at this case said this would have been the next Sandy Hook if Antoinette Tuff had not been there. And the way that she, the way that this man was converted was not by her telling him how bad he was, It was by her sharing her vulnerability with him. And I want you to think about the reason that the qualification of being a disciple is instructive to us. That what Jesus is telling Peter, is showing him, is Peter, the way that you're going to go and fish for people is not by you going out and being really strong and having a good sales pitch for me. It's actually going to be you going and telling people how you're a sinner and how you need grace. And y'all listen. As you if you do that with if you're a Christian, you're thinking like, man, there's someone that I really I want to know Jesus. Like I want them to know about who Jesus is. What if instead of you sitting down with them? with your sales pitch? And what if instead of 
sitting down with them and telling them why they need Jesus. You sat down with them and told them why you need Jesus. What if you sat down with them and you told them, here's my story of my sin and brokenness. And this is why Jesus is so precious to me. Because I believe that God is a God who moves towards sinners. I believe it's all throughout the pages of the Bible. And I think that God has actually done that with me. And I think that God would do that. He, he, he would do that with you because he's good and kind and gracious. And I want you to know that God. Because I think he's real and I think he made everything. And I think he's good. What if that was the way that we fish for men? Leading with our vulnerability. Leading with our brokenness. Leading with our sin. That's the vocation of being a disciple. The motivation, how can you do this? The tempting preacher move at this, at this point, like the kind of like closing like jab to give you is like, y'all know what Peter did. Peter left the nets. He left the catch and followed Jesus. So that's what you need to do. But all that is getting at is like another kind of like, you need to be better. What I want you to do, because that, that actually won't motivate you. What I want you to do is, is to think about Peter's situation. What, what caused him to leave the only life he ever knew? Y'all, Peter walks away from the greatest catch of his life. Think about that, John Kelly, fisherman. Like you, the greatest catch he's ever made. He like sunk two boats with all of his fish. The greatest catch he's ever made. And he walks away from it. How? Because he found something better. I was at the Union two years ago, walking uh, around. Uh, that's what I do. I just walk around the Union all day. No, I'm just kidding. But I was walking, and um, I heard this hilarious exchange between two girls as they were just, like, walking past me. And they were talking about, like, exes, you know? Um, and one, <laughs> one of the girls goes... Aren't we all still low-key? Wait, hold on, let me get this right. She goes, aren't we all low-key still a little in love with our ex? <laughs> let me say that again. Aren't we all low-key still a little in love with our ex? And then her friend goes, oh, me for sure. <laughs> so, but here's the thing. That is actually getting at something that is so true about us, that we, we can't replace an old love until something better has come along. It's really hard to replace an old love until it gets actually squeezed out by something that's way better. This old Puritan, Thomas Chalmers, like back in like the 1800s, I think, wrote a paper about this called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And what those girls were talking about at the Union is exactly what Thomas Chalmers was talking about. That there is an expulsive power that like once we get a new affection, a new love, that that's what motivates us to change, to leave the nets and follow Jesus. So the motivation for you is not just go out and be better. The motivation for you is this. I want you to see, before you go and leave everything and follow Jesus, you need to see that Jesus left everything for you. Philippians 2 says this, have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What I want you to see is that Jesus left everything not for good people. He left everything for bad people. He left everything and became a man for sinners. That's the good news. If the, please inspect if this is true. If this is true, this changes everything. He left everything for the bad people. And that's the thing that will motivate you to follow him. So consider that. He bids you to do the same. To leave everything. Not because he's mean and because he's trying to make you have a terrible life. He's actually doing it because he loves you. So my hope for you, my encouragement for you to consider is that you would admit you're a sinner. Admit it to him. And come to him. And then let him take your weakness to the world. For the good of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, I am so thankful that your son is the kind of person who moved towards sinners. That um, when the second person of the Trinity walked among us and showed us who you are really like, that we got to see that you are the kind of God who moves towards people uh, who are broken and don't have it all together. And so I pray that that might be what motivates us to be disciples, to follow you into this world as fisher of men, fishers of men um, who come alongside people in relationships, love people as Jesus loved them, who are patient with people who are struggling and doubting, just like Jesus was. I pray that you would help us to be that kind of person too. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.